really appreciate all those people working hard this week to prepare music to lead us in corporate worship through song. So God bless you all and thank you for your hard work. You know, over the last 50 years, there's been a growing fascination in our culture with martial arts. Seems like there's a martial arts studio now on virtually every corner of the community. People participate in martial arts for all kinds of reasons. Some do it for exercise. Some do it to promote self-confidence. Others do it so that they'll be the baddest, meanest dude around and nobody will mess with them. Just have all kinds of reasons that, that people participate in, in those things. And, you know, as it has grown in our country, there have been an increasing diversity of the various disciplines, the martial arts disciplines that are available. When I was a boy, it was karate. That's all there was. Well, now there are many things to choose from, and one of them is jujitsu. Jujitsu is a Japanese martial art, and essentially what it does is it teaches a strategy for taking your opponent's strength and body weight and then turning it back against them to defeat them. So I have entitled this morning's message, Spiritual Jiu-Jitsu, because I think when we are finished with what James has to say to us, we will be able to do just that. We will be able to turn sin, strength back upon itself and defeat it. And so the Bible's up to James chapter 1. You're using a pew Bible, page 1207. We're going to continue here this morning in chapter 1. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 12. This morning, we'll pick it up in verse 13, carry it all the way through verse 21. Last week, James strongly exhorted us to make a decisive decision to consider the external trials of life as unadulterated joy because we know that God is working in and through them to produce endurance in the Christian life. And that endurance itself, when it has its full effect, brings us to completion, maturity, wholeness in Christ, praying as we go for wisdom, and in particular, keeping our eye upon the return of Christ, our very blessed hope. This morning, James will begin to speak to us about internal trials. The internal trials, not the external trials of life, but the internal trials of life that frequently result in temptation that leads to sin. And he will give us a three-pronged strategy for breaking sin's grip so that we might practically live out our Christian lives. So that's what he has for us this morning, a three-pronged strategy of jujitsu that we might break sin's grip upon our souls. Let me read the text for you, beginning in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. 
Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren. But let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. James give us, gives us a three-pronged strategy here this morning in these verses. And it begins in verses 13 through 15 by the fact that we must recognize sin's pattern. That is the first prong of the strategy. To recognize sin's pattern. Over the years, I have become somewhat of a student of the human condition. As I observe mankind and my own heart, I have come to a number of observations which I think are universally true of the human condition. One of those is that we are by nature blame shifters. We are blame shifters. Our first impulse is not to look inside of ourselves when we have trouble, but to look outside, to look externally, to to place the fault or the blame or the guilt upon someone other than us. We see it very early on when we speak to a child and say, Susie, why did you hit your sister? And her answer is, is because she took the toy from me. That is a subtle shifting of blame. Now it is, it is her sister's fault for taking the toy that justifies the response of hitting her sister. It's very subtle But we all partake of it. We are quick to shift responsibility, shift blame anywhere and everywhere we can other than upon ourselves. Now, I say it's universal because we've all inherited it from our first father, Adam. He was the master blame shifter. He is the one who first established this strategy. After eating of the forbidden fruit and being confronted by God... In a very loving and gracious response, he took ownership for his sin. Wrong. He immediately blamed God and threw his wife under the bus. That was Adam's response. God said, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Adam says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Oh. I see. It was her fault. It was my fault. After all, I'm the one who gave her to you. So that subtle strategy of blame shifting, including laying the blame at God's own feet, goes back to the beginning of human history. And we're all masters at it. We all excel at it. We all practice it with a good amount of regularity. So in light of this natural tendency among all of us, James, here in verse 13, very decisively crushes all excuses with regard to the source of the temptation that we all face. Verse 13, 
Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. When facing temptation, God has no part in it, James is saying. God has no part in the evil at all. He is literally unversed in evil, and thus he tempts no one, period. Period. James just blows that excuse away. He just puts it aside once and for all. And then he begins to deal with the real reason for sin. Now, by this statement... James undoes all excuses. All excuses for sin relating to our environment. It's the environment I was brought up in. James does away with all excuses related to circumstances. It's the circumstances of the event that led me to this sin. James does away with all opportunities. See, I wouldn't have sinned, but this opportunity presented itself and I had no choice. James does away with all excuses of associations. Well, if I hadn't have been with those bad people, I wouldn't have done this. James puts an end to all blame shifting with regard to family members. It's the family I was brought up in. All external factors James obliterates with this statement in verse 13. For it is the providence of God, my friends... That brings us into circumstances, opportunities, associations, family relationships, etc., etc. And God is absolutely, totally, completely unversed in evil and he tempts no one to evil, period. Period. We know this to be true, by the way. We know this to be true because we would reject an excuse for a person who stole money out of a cash register by saying, well, the drawer was left open. No one would accept that excuse. Nor would we accept the excuse that it is a pretty woman that is the cause of one's sexual lust. We would refuse that excuse. We know it doesn't work. In fact, we know, we know intuitively that that's not true. Because if we really thought it was true, then we would require all women to wear burqas. And we reject that. Because we understand that's not the source of the problem. So where do temptations come from? And how do we defeat them? James speaks to us in verses 14 and 15. And he lays out the pattern of sin. The pattern of sin. And we need to recognize that pattern. He uses very vivid language, by the way, here in verses 14 and 15. Language drawn from fishing and childbirth. He draws on a metaphor from fishing and he draws on childbirth. That we might understand the power of temptation and the inevitability of sin once we enter into it. Now, in order to understand this pattern of sin... It's worth taking a moment or two to explain the process of human behavior. This may be new to some of us. There is a definable process that brings about human behavior, good or evil. That process 
occurs every single time, whether we are aware of it or not. It's very simple. Let me give it to you. We think, we desire, we decide, and we do. We think, we desire, we decide, and we do. That is the process of human behavior. To use more biblical terms, it begins in the mind. It moves to the affections. The affections to the will and the will to the behavior. Mind, affections, will, behavior. We think, we desire, we decide, and we do. What we think is good, we desire. It captures our affections. What has captured our affections, we necessarily decide to pursue. The will becomes captivating. What captivates our will determines our behavior. We ultimately will pursue it. That is the way human behavior plays itself out. For good and for evil. So with this background behind us, let's take a look at what James specifically says, verse 14. He uses an expression here in verse 14, carried away and enticed. Do you see it? He says that each one is carried away and enticed. This is a fishing term, and it speaks of a fish being drawn out of hiding by means of bait dangled in front of it. The bait dangles in the water in front of the fish and the fish is drawn out from under the log or under the bank where it is hiding and where it is safe. Temptation occurs when we are confronted with a test or trial in life. If we have been previously deceived in our thinking and we do not believe that God either will provide for our good or punish the sin of our disobedience, then that temptation takes a decidedly, that trial takes a decidedly evil turn for all of us. At that moment, evil appears good to us. And when evil appears good, lust kicks in. Our affections now crave, now desire the evil that our minds have been deceived into thinking that there's no hook attached to, no consequence to our behavior. Lust begins to dominate us. It's helpful, I think, at this point to notice again in verse 14 that James speaks about lust as belonging to an individual. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Do you see that? His own lust. In the Greek, idios, we get the word idiosyncrasy or idiosyncrasies from this Greek word. What's an idiosyncrasy? It's something peculiar or unique to an individual. There is a certain sense in which everyone's lust has a, has a unique and particular aspect known to them. Have you ever wondered why people do what they do? Have you ever looked at somebody who's doing something and say to yourself, I don't understand why they do that. I don't get it. I would never do that. Well, it makes perfect sense to them. 
We must understand that. It makes perfect sense to them at that moment. That's why they do it. It has attracted their particular affections. You know, we're all born with certain innate desires, right? There is the innate desire that all are born with for nourishment. The need to eat, the need to breathe, the need to drink. There's the innate desire for protection. There's an innate desire for sexual satisfaction. There's an innate desire for a sense of well-being. These are common to all of humanity. But the way that those desires are fulfilled can be quite unique. It can be quite specific. And is very much influenced by culture and upbringing. We can even go so far as to say that we have designer lusts. How's that? We don't have common lusts. We have designer lusts. Certain lusts that appear so powerful to us and to others, there's little attraction associated with them. For example, a baby desires food. A baby desires food, but the desire for a certain kind of food is a learned behavior. It's a learned behavior. It's a product of its environment, its upbringing. By the way, advertisers understand this. They know this all too well. That's why they spend billions of dollars convincing our minds that we will not be satisfied, happy, have well-being, status, success, whatever it is, unless we go out and purchase their product. They're very good at this. The secular world understands the process of human behavior, and it begins in the mind. So they begin the appeal there by creating within the mind a perceived need. By the way, any fisherman worth their salt, if you were to ask them to look into their tackle box you would find an assortment of lures. Isn't that right? You don't go into a, ta- a fisherman's tackle box and find one hook. All right? Here's my, here's my fishing tackle. One hook. No, 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 no. The more experienced the fisherman, the, the more the array of special hooks and lures, right? Everybody's got their little one here. This puppy, I throw this in the water and nobody can resist. Fishermen intuitively know this. That is that the same lure doesn't attract all the fish all the time. They need a designer lure to attract designer fish. The secret to fishing is to figure out what they're biting and to hang it in front of their nose. That's what James is talking about here in verse 14. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. When it's hanging in front of our nose... We've been deceived into thinking there's no hook attached. And it's hanging there right in front of our nose. It's so shiny and, and it's moving in the water just right. And it won't be long. It won't be long before we'll dash out from under the log and grab a hold of it. Grab a hold of it. Over verse 15, James changes metaphors from fishing to childbirth. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. He switches to a childbirth metaphor here. And he, and he just says very simply, as assuredly as conception produces children, so lust produces death. It's as simple as that. As surely as conception produces children, so 
Lust will produce death. Once we have taken the bait, once we have yielded to lust, conception occurs, James says. And the child of lust is sin, and the child of sin is death. It is a progression. It is a family progression. One writer said, sin itself is pregnant with death and delivers a stillborn child. It's inevitable. It's inescapable. We see it illustrated really, really well in Joshua chapter 7. So I'm going to ask you to turn back there. Page 230. Joshua chapter 7. Verses 20 and 21. The context is that the people of Israel have entered into the promised land and they've just enjoyed an incredible victory over Jericho. The walls of Jericho have fallen down and God had specifically said to them that when Jericho falls down, you are not to take any of the spoil of the city at all. It belongs to me. After the victory at Jericho, a little bit confident, they send up a much smaller contingent to fight a adjacent city called Ai, and there they are defeated before the Canaanites. At this point, the, the people of Israel are beside themselves. They don't understand what happened. Such an incredible victory at Jericho, and now this stunning defeat at Ai. What is going on? God reveals to them that there is sin in the camp, that someone within the nation has, prohibit, has taken prohibited articles from Jericho. And so through a, a, a system of lots, it is drawn out who it is, and it is this young man, Achan. Joshua confronts him and says, Come clean, young man. Tell us what you've done. Verse 20, Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful robe from Babylon and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. Then I coveted them and took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. I saw. I coveted. I took. It is the pattern. I saw, I coveted, I took. We think, we desire, we decide, and we do. And that's exactly what this young man had done. We see the same thing, by the way, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, where the text records for us, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. She saw, she desired, and she took the same pattern of human behavior. We 
We've all experienced this in our lives. This is the process by which we fall into sin. We think, we desire, we decide, and we do. Some years ago, I received a catalog in the mail that had a hunting knife in it. I like to collect knives. So here was this catalog with this particular hunting knife in it. And I began to look at the hunting knife and I began to tell myself all the reasons why this hunting knife should be part of my collection. By the way, I'm not a hunter. But this knife had a particular turn to its blade and construction materials, and it would be really cool to own. And so I began to think about this knife. And the more I began to think about the, the knife, I slowly began to desire it. And I began to desire it a lot. And knew that I didn't need another knife. And certainly not this hunting knife, which I would never use. But by that time, it was too late. The affections had been engaged. The desires were growing. I had ignored the fact that there was a hook attached to the lure. And all I could see was the, was the shimmering in the water in front of my nose. Now, I'm a mature Christian man, and so I'm not going to be taken in by knife. So I put the catalog away. And about two weeks later, I got it back out. <laughs> and I looked at it again. And then I put it away. And then I took it back out and I looked at it again. And every time I looked at it, the desire would grow stronger and stronger until finally I decided to get my credit card out and to call the company to ship me the knife. We think, <laughs> we desire, we decide, and we do. When it arrived in the mail, I was stuck with an ethical quandary, which is, do I show it to my wife or do I hide it in the dirt under my tent? Because I knew that if I showed it to her, she would ask me a very simple question. Why do you need this? <laughs> For which I did not have a good answer. So you hide it a while out on the workbench. You know what I'm talking about, guys. Oh, when did you get that? Oh, I've had it a long time. <clears throat> Ladies, by the way, the dress in the closet... Oh, honey, I've had that a long time. Really, I never saw it before. We think, we desire, we decide, and we do. And that is the pattern by which righteousness occurs or sin occurs. It is the same decision tree, but it begins with how one thinks. And that takes us to the second prong of the strategy for breaking sin's chokehold. And that is we must remember God's generosity. Back to James 1. 
We must remember God's generosity. James says, verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. By the way, when the New Testament writers speak about the danger of sin, it is very, very common that they warn us about deception. Did you ever notice that? The do not be deceived line is frequently associated when they begin to talk about sin and its lusts. Defeating sin begins here. It begins in the mind. It is a result of how we think. If we begin down the wrong path of thinking, sin is inevitable. Conversely, if we are moving down the right path, righteousness is inevitable. Paul tells us in Ephesians that while we are unsaved, we were formerly indulging in the desires of the mind. Because we were futile in our thinking, darkened in our understanding. Jesus said that we would know the truth and the truth would make us free. Romans 12 and verse 2, Paul says, Therefore, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind. And that renewal comes by remembering that God is not the tempter, but instead the source of all good things. Verse 17, notice how James comes right at that. Verse 13, God has nothing to do with evil, period. He is unversed in it and he has nothing to do with it in terms of tempting you. Instead, verse 17, God is good. God is good. And goodness is an essential aspect of his character. It's a reality about him that can never change. Unlike the natural son which moves in the heavens and and casts differing shadows. God the Father is the eternal light and He never moves. He never moves. He is the constant and reliable giver of good gifts. Verse 17. The greatest gift, the greatest gift that God gives is the gift of His own Son. The gift of His own Son. Notice in verse 18, Paul says that in the exercise of God's sovereign will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That is the gospel. So that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. God has given to us the gospel, the word of truth. And if he has given us the gospel, he will withhold nothing good from us. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all good things? If God gives us his son, there is no good gift he will withhold. See, my friends, what happens to us is we forget that God is a good gift giver. We become discontented, ungrateful. We lose track of the fact that He has given everything to us. 
And sin begins with this kind of deceit. We swallow the lie that that God is withholding from us something essential to our happiness, something that we must have for our well-being. And we continue the lie by saying that, that if we just stretch forth our hand and take it, then we will have the satisfaction that our soul longs for. The only way to break that grip, sin upon our mind, is to, is to cultivate a thankful heart. And the only way to do that is by consciously focusing on God's goodness to us through the gospel by which he has caused us to be born anew. The greatest density of the goodness of God is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 18, the word of truth. The word of truth. We never, ever, ever outgrow our need to hear and meditate on the gospel. Never. It is the place where where we hear about what Christ has done. It is the place where we encounter God's gracious character, His generosity. And so we need to read it. We need to sing it. We need to speak it. We need to meditate on it. We need to preach it. We need to teach it. We need to remember God's generosity. When we forget, that's when we begin down the deviant path into sin. And it is we fill our heart with the with the goodness and generosity of God by meditating on his word and remembering the gospel that our thinking is corrected and we begin down the path of righteousness. To remember God's generosity. Third, we have to respond to his word. We have to respond to his word. Because we've been brought forth by his word, verse 18, we should be quick to hear it. We should be quick to hear it. The word of the gospel saves us both eternally and temporally. Both eternally and temporally. But here's the problem. When we're being tried, when we're failing, when we're following, falling into sin, what's the last thing we want to hear? It is the Word of God. The one thing we need becomes the last thing we want to hear. It's as silly as someone dying of a disease in which there is a, a remedy, an antidote, and them refusing to take it. Just as silly. Can't tell you how many times that I have I have met with people, I have counseled with people whose lives have become a shambles because of their refusal to obey the word of God. And we we lay out the path of righteousness and we present it to them. And they refuse it. They would rather die on the installment plan. Than to take the temporary pain of hearing the word of God. And letting it speak into their lives. My friends, it comes down to an issue of faith. Pure and simple, it comes down to an issue of faith. The Bible Church has five core values. I won't embarrass you by asking you to name them. 
But the second core value is very significant to what we're talking about this morning. You can come up with it off the top of your head, do so. Otherwise, flip your bulletin over and look. Core value number two, determined to obey the Bible. Determined to obey the Bible. That is a corporate value, but it is also an individual value. We are determined to obey the Bible. It is a bedrock principle of the Christian life. Do we believe God knows best? Do we believe God's way is the best way? And if so, are we determined to obey Him? Are we determined to obey Him? This you know, verse 19, my beloved brethren, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Be quick to hear the Word of God. Be slow to open your mouth in response to it. Be slow to grow angry when it confronts you. Why? Verse 20. For the anger of man does not achieve what? The righteousness of God. It's as simple as that. Therefore, verse 21, therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. Rather than grow angry, When we hear the word of God, rather than speak out against it, listen and receive it. We put ourselves in the best position to do that. According to verse 21, by putting away evil, therefore, put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. Receive the word of God, which is able to save your souls. The end of the verse. Very strong Greek term here, by the way, for putting aside. More literally, you yourselves put away from you. You yourselves put away from you. All filthiness, wickedness. In a word, repent. Repent. Metanoia, change your thinking, change your mind. You know, as long as we're eating junk food, we have no appetite for that which is healthy. So James says, put it away and you must do it. No one can do it for you. You yourselves do this thing. Put away evil. How? In the same way we came to Christ in the very beginning. We call out upon Him. We believe His word to be true. And we call upon Him and turn from our wickedness. It's done in dependence on the Spirit of God. Middle of the verse. You 
put ourselves in a position to hear the word of God by putting aside wickedness, putting it off, repenting, and then in humility receiving that implanted word. Do you know that humility and anger are mortal enemies? Did you know that? Humility and anger are mortal enemies. Anger feeds on pride like rats feed on garbage. Anger feeds on pride like rats feed on garbage. You want to get rid of the rat infestation? You must get rid of the garbage. You must empty the trash. You can't leave it lying around. We get rid of the garbage when we humble our hearts. We clean it out in humility. In humility, receive the word implanted. In an environment, an atmosphere of humility, anger has nothing to feed on. We're ready to receive the word. Be quick to hear. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. May the Spirit of God grant us grace this morning to have ears to hear what God is saying. Let's pray. Our Father God, You have given us this morning in your word insight into the recurring sin that that harasses every one of us. Our Father, you have provided for us everything for life and godliness through your word. And so, O Lord, we pray even now that your spirit would cause that word that we have heard this morning to resonate in our hearts. Help us to believe it, to by faith grab hold of it. Let it transform our thinking. And, O Lord, as it transforms our thinking, it will ultimately transform our behavior. O Lord, we desire right now to live for Christ. We're sitting here in this room together, Father, and it is our highest desire is to live for Christ. Oh, Lord, may you help us apply what we've heard. That this day we might have a measure of success in fulfilling that desire. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.